So welcome to the next episode of The Leftover Thinkers. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to be talking about the seventh episode today entitled Solace for Tired Feet. I had not even thought of looking up the title of the episode. The only link I can think is is the idea of someone being on a long journey. Right? Yeah, and like Tom is, yeah, exactly. Tom is on a long uh, and, and he's coming to the end of his journey. So, I mean, this was a, it was an okay episode. It wasn't yeah. anything special. I think it did a good job at progressing the narrative in quite a few places. I think there was a, a decent amount of movement, particularly, weirdly enough, I felt like there was a good amount of movement in the Tom storyline, which mm-hmm. is not my favourite of the storylines. Um, but I remember when I was watching this the first time and I was just super surprised that we got to the point of Christine giving birth uh, so early mm. in the in, in the in the season well I suppose we're on episode seven now but even so I thought it would be dragged out until maybe a season finale thing uh, so I suppose that kind of ties it up with the idea which we'll discuss in more depth later of the expectations that the characters have for this baby what this baby will be also tying up with the expectations for the viewer right so we're mm-hmm. expecting it to be this big moment when she gives birth and actually it doesn't seem to mean much and it just kind of appears like any normal pregnancy would or mm-hmm. any normal birth would. Yeah, and kind of happens um, off screen. It happens, mm-hmm. you know, without the, with not through the point of view of, of the character that we're following. It, it catches you by surprise. And there was also, I guess, in these wheel spinny episodes where we get a lot of movement, Mm-hmm. When I'm re-watching them this time, I'm surprised that they are also kind of quite thematically uh, cohesive yeah. and they have a lot of symbols that run through. They have a like a little arc that concludes quite well and they're not just, you know, a bunch of stuff happens. So I appreciated that. There were loads of things cropping up throughout where I was like, oh, that links into something from previous episodes, future episodes and also within itself as an individual episode. So mm-hmm. um, actually... Quite, I wasn't looking forward to this one, but I'm, now I've rewatched it, I am looking forward to this. Shall we dive yeah. in? We start the episode with a close-up of a poster of Gladys. Um, so Gladys is the Guilty Remnant member who was murdered uh, a few episodes prior. Uh, and the poster is um, kind of looks like almost like a, a wanted poster or something. <laughs> yeah, it does a bit. <laughs> and below Gladys uh, is some writing that says save them Uh, we have a close-up of the poster and then we have a close-up of Laurie who doesn't look too impressed she looks a little bit frustrated at them Uh, she moves forward and starts ripping them down Uh, other members of the guilty remnant join her uh, and she then turns around and she as she's tearing down the poster she sees Jill from across the road Uh, Jill is there in putting some things in a car uh, with the twins she makes eye contact with her mum uh, and then Amy pulls Jill away, basically says, don't bother. Uh, yeah, she says, like, fuck her off. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Laurie watches them leave. I'm finding this interesting because, like, Laurie's reaction, well, really, like, Laurie's, Laurie's face in this episode is always very enigmatic and yeah. she, she's not in it a lot, uh, but when she's in it, it's quite hard to read what what she's thinking and in the in this first scene we see I think we see the back of her head first 
-hmm. then we see her looking at the posters and then we see her starting to tear down the posters and then more DR arrive to help her. So I'm thinking now it's almost as if maybe at the start you're meant to think, oh, she's having a reaction to the posters, like an individual reaction, but no, she's just on a job with the guilty remnants. They're just taking down the posters. In this episode, she's a perfect GR soldier. Like she were shown none of her previous doubts, doing her job, yeah. doesn't have a personality, doesn't have feelings, all that kind of stuff. So then, yeah, we get <laughs> the, the Jill and the other youths are in the woods doing their usual stuff, being cynical and cool. So we hear someone's voice going like, let me out, enough. And it turns out that there is this kind of battered old fridge with all these writings on it. And one of the twins is locked in it. And it's like, it's the first time that the twins are doing different things. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this like, do they have different personalities? <laughs> Uh, this guy's called Scotty, apparently. I think well. I think it's... I initially thought that it was another boy because I was like, that can't be a twin. <laughs> it's only one of them. There can't be a thing that one of the twins is doing that the other one is not doing. That's very doesn't strange. doesn't someone make a joke about that when he comes out of the of the fridge? I'm sure someone says something yes, like, "Oh, do yes. you feel the same thing?" Like Amy says, "So if he if he suffocates, do you also suffocate?" Um, <laughs> And now, I mean, if we wanted to overthink the twins, which we've not done, I'm thinking there's something about doubling and replaceability that has come up before, where people are disappearing and they're not there. They are doubly there. I would have loved like a twin departure story, like what happens Mm. if someone's twin departs, but they did not give it to us. So yeah, basically they're playing one of their like cynical games and clearly people are being put in a fridge and they have to stay in there as long as possible. And I think there's that guy, that guy without a soul who's just an awful person who's called Max. is the one who was uh, like lighting the baby Jesus on fire, the one in the wanking incident. That guy is just, you know, he's just dead inside. And he's, I think he yells something like, oh, come on, you still have air for like 27 minutes. They, they get him out. And obviously, uh, Jill says, I can beat the record because, you know, she's just seen her mom. She feels like acting out. And then she, they basically, she just wants to go in and do this thing. But it appears that there's some kind of ritual around this, this fridge there is writing on it and they have her read this, which is called the, um, the invocation. Yeah, uh, Max says you need to do the invocation before you attempt the crossing. Yeah. I found that super interesting, the way that they called it the crossing. So uh, basically, uh, the invocation is something that is written on the fridge itself. And it's a story, or I suppose a bit of a warning about uh, someone called Uh, someone called Paul Glowski and Paul Glowski on the day of the departure was put in the fridge as part of a childish prank uh, and he was locked in there and the departure happened and they opened the door up and he was departed Um, so he had disappeared yeah 
so the rest of the invocation says something along the lines of now I honor the mystery of his loss by repeating his suffering and embracing the great darkness yeah I I've also written this down because I find this very interesting and actually it is not the most unhealthy way in which these teens are dealing with this like as among the things we've seen them do like ah! I find this almost like a sweet attempt to deal with their feelings around the departure or at least they're acknowledging that this mm. is about the departure they're having a, a bit of a risky of- one though <laughs> I would say of the things that they've been doing this is probably the most dangerous right oh yeah for sure <laughs> but, but no I get what sentiment. you mean <laughs> yeah the the sentiment of of going through the motions of of doing what Paul did I guess I mean yeah I guess I mean kind of psychologically healthy rather than safe (laughs) in the sense they are at least acknowledging that that they want to do something in relation to the mystery of the departure that that their feelings are related to that Jill the, the way that Jill is reading this obviously she's trying to put as little care as possible into her voice she's like reading as if whatever yes this and I'm this unaffected like, by the departure yeah yeah she had no feelings about the departure or about her mom she just wants to get in a fridge and just let her do it <laughs> so cold-hearted yeah so so yeah do you that. get it because of the fridge no nah. <laughs> same <laughs> <laughs> So she she gets into the she finishes reading the invocation uh, and then I think it's Max says see you on the other side Garby. So okay so my motif of the week is the idea of and it's it's quite a small one I don't think it's like a huge one for this episode but I just found it quite interesting that this was something that cropped up a couple of times and it's the idea of crossing the idea of crossing over of using a bridge of of crossing a line those kinds of things um, and this is obviously the first time it comes up as to when the the act of going into the fridge is described as a crossing. We can obviously relate this to the idea of the departure itself. Some people thinking that it might be a crossing. It might be a a crossing to heaven, right? Um, Some kind of afterlife or to another world or to another place. So I thought that was interesting that that idea was coming out through this idea of the fridge. There's also later on Christine's baby Christine refers to her baby as a bridge yeah so I see this idea of of crossing and bridges and and the idea of something being a way to move across cropping up a few times here Mm. Um, and I think there were another couple of times it was picked up on as well which I will mention as we're going through so that was my motif of the week yeah I think yeah I think I was also struck by the way they they describe the departure very much is like a going from a place to another yeah and the fridge becomes almost this kind of interdimensional little like spaceship kind of thing mm-hmm. um, that they can use to travel somewhere mm-hmm. yeah I mean I wonder if this could be a tie to the title as well right solace for tired feet if if this special baby that is something to do with the departure and it's being called a bridge could we think that maybe the baby is a way to cross over maybe the baby will be the person that will allow us to cross over and access the departed right 
so if we're thinking of it in those terms, thinking about the departure as a crossing, maybe solace for tired feet is this idea of the people who have departed, or the people who have traveled, who have crossed over, uh, and mm. their feet are tired. <laughs> Not yeah, literally, of course, but, but that idea of a long journey. Yeah, and obviously we talked about, last time we talked about um, like crossing and transitional spaces a lot as well. We had the mm. lift, we had Nora going through lots of stairs and corridors. So yeah, it's it's definitely, this idea of the departure is definitely acquiring a, a spatial dimension as, as people are thinking of where they are because yeah, they disappeared from this world, but it's almost like the idea that they've traveled somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. Right, yeah. So yeah, um, at this point, yeah, Jill gets in the fridge and we cut to a different scene and Kevin and Nora are getting out of uh, like a restaurant and they're getting into a car and Nora asks, do you want to come over? And I think at this point, I thought this was their first date, but it mm-hmm. turns out it's their fourth date. So Kevin is very like, are you sure? Which struck me as a bit weird, considering they're two adults and they're on their yeah. fourth date. I, I love Kevin in this scene. I thought it was really funny. And mm. like he so he makes this joke. Uh, he says that he's going to text Jill uh, and Nora says, oh, are you going to tell her about me or something like that? And Kevin goes, yep. And he does it really uh, straight face. And, and he says, oh, just texting her now. Hey, honey, just going to go have sex with Nora for the first time. Bit nervous. And I just, I genuinely laughed at that. And I was like, oh, yeah. Kevin, are you about to get my um, my person of the week? And then everything else happened. So, <laughs> Yeah, we don't normally see this side of Kevin. Kevin mm-hmm. is usually angry and upset and tired and shouting at someone and he's actually being like quite funny and charming and Mm -hmm. you know he's quite cool and be like yeah it might be nice to go on a date with Kevin (laughs) which is not something I've ever thought Um. I I do feel like it was intentional right so they're setting up Kevin as being quite lighthearted and fun and you think oh maybe he's moving on from his trauma and then everything else happens and, and he's dragged back into it So yeah, then we cut back to Jill and we just see she's like in darkness and we just see her like illuminated by the light on her phone and she's breathing quite heavily and she's sweating and she gets the text from Kevin, which actually says like, are you okay without me tonight or something? And then her phone falls down. But at that point, the people outside the fridge are starting to like do a countdown because she's very close to breaking the record. And Jill, she seems happy to beat the record, but she's struggling to breathe. And then they're about to open it. She goes like, come on, let me out. Um, And then guy with no soul, Max, he pulls the the handle and the handle comes off. And then like a sort of horror music comes on. uh, And Jill is like, what the fuck is happening? And basically, yeah, she's she's gonna she's gonna die because the air is is running out. So they're all shouting. They're like, call nine one one. They're trying to pry the door open. Just oh gosh, I felt so claustrophobic in this scene. And yeah, I, I know. Because they're all outside, just making it worse. Like the worst thing to do is for her to hyperventilate and then screaming and panicking and freaking out. Of course, you would then inside be like, oh my god, yeah. get and me so the fuck she out starts here. like. 
she starts like banging on the walls, yelling, let me out. And then we see her, she's about to pass out. Um, and then at that point we see, uh, we're flooded with light and we see the door open from Jill's point of view. And her granddad, Kevin Senior is there, which I thought was pretty random. Yeah, he, he kind of lets her out. She's still alive, she's still okay. And uh, he says, don't tell your dad you saw me and, and runs off. Um, and then the credits roll. I thought that the framing of this scene was really interesting. Uh, so the way she kind of falls back and it's like she's on her back and then it's dark and then she's looking up and the light comes in. It's Kevin uh, Senior is framed in light. It seemed very mm. angelic. Or yeah, it is a bit divine. like maybe like a bit like she's in a she's in a grave, and he's yeah, that's pulling a good her point. out. Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe uh, there's also yeah. some music that plays here as well, and I think it's the same music that appears two other times in this episode, like a choral, like a choir. Uh, oh, that music! Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's it's always when we're seeing um, Kevin Senior. Um, so. I think uh, maybe for later discussion at the end, uh, but I think it's interesting the moments in which that music comes out. And then I suppose thinking back to what Jill is doing in this moment, she's attempting the crossing and you kind of get this question of, oh, is she, has she succeeded? Has she crossed over? Is she going into this divine spiritual place? Obviously not, she's just mm -hmm. fallen over and gotten locked in a fridge. Yeah, and, and I guess you can also think that what, what's pulling her out of it and, and it kind of continues um, for the rest of the episode is, is a, a, the connection with her family. And actually, I'm, I've, I haven't thought about my MVP, but I am now vaguely considering making Jill my MVP. I'm just going to tell you now. I think you're right. I think Jill does a really good job in this episode at many things. She's showing a maturity. Yeah, an uncharacteristic maturity. There were um, so many moments where I thought she would just not say anything or just uh, hide in a room and just not talk to her dad about things. But every point, point she did the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah, yeah. when she seemed to be having uh, internal conflicts about it. So kudos to Jill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Uh -huh. Uh, we have the credits and then we go up to Tommy and Christine. Tommy's doing a, a really bad job of cooking some soup, which looks minging. <laughs> uh, so she, she's dreaming. Uh, she looks, she doesn't look well. Uh, she looks like she's got fever. She's like flopping about on the bed. She's talking in her sleep. She says spiders uh, on the wall or something, spiders. Yeah, I, I thought so too. I was thinking, yeah, the spider's underwater, but that doesn't yeah. make much sense. Oh, okay. So I've got notes of the uh, the major stories from the National Geographic that comes up later. And one of the titles of the articles in the issue is The Spider That Lives Underwater. Oh my God. Oh, I see. So that. that makes more sense than what I wrote down. Bizarrely, it makes more sense that the spider would be underwater than it would be on the wall, of course. <laughs> yeah. So that's really interesting then, if if that is a, I'm assuming that's a purposeful connection. Um, okay. You know, what, how we've said before that like, there is a sense in which the show 
um, doesn't quite let you explain everything within perfectly rational yeah. means. And I think Kevin Senior's illness or whatever you want to call it or actual visions mm -hmm. um, are a good example of this because it's like, yeah, he seems on the surface like he's mad, right? But then you have this connection with Christine and clearly it's like he's hinting that there's this bigger plan going on and the fact that Christine is randomly talking about a thing from the issue of the National Geographic uh, it's very hard to explain without giving credit to Kevin Senior as having actually discovered some bigger yeah. thing going on. Another thing that she says at this time is the thing that I've just mentioned earlier about nothing can hurt the baby. He's the one, the only one. He's the bridge. Yeah. So setting up this idea again that this baby is something that is important for some reason and that he's some kind of bridge that will help. The bridge? or the fridge the baby is the fridge <laughs> i'm joking mind blown <laughs> we do um, see a lot of fridges in this episode <laughs> well there's also the famous nora's fridge from where the from there the photo was taken i've been talking about that fridge for ages wow the real motif of the season <laughs> It's breakfast food all the way down. It's breakfast food. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, maybe if you had made Christine some cereal or some French toast, it would have all gone differently. Oh, damn, damn, damn. Him and his damn soup. So, so Tom goes to the pharmacy uh, to try and find something uh, to help Christine feel better. He picks, he picks like a, some tablets up and says to the pharmacist, is this okay for pregnant women? Uh, asks how far along is she and he goes like eight and a half months something like that uh, and the pharmacist says well you should contact your your OB uh, so Tom obviously not wanting to raise alarm bells and say we don't have an OB uh, just kind of says okay yeah I'll do that sure and this obviously this interaction reminded me of the uh, of the one with the doctor much yeah. like kind of much earlier on where that she ended up calling the police because the, the thing whole thing looked suspicious as hell and it's it's clear that tom has kind of learned to not raise eyebrows along mm -hmm. the way like a bit better but i suppose it also raises concerns for what tom's plan is if the baby comes and if something were to go wrong uh, so i guess it's kind of raising the stakes of they need to hear from wayne because they need to know what wayne has planned from their perspective, they're probably thinking, oh, Wayne surely has a mm. plan uh, for the birth and somewhere that has maybe a doctor. And as we come to learn at the end of this episode, yeah. it's not quite like that, but no. they have this slight bit of hope here, I imagine. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because like Tom, at this point, he gets a, a, a call from Wayne and we see where Wayne is and he's in on this like, caught on the floor in this dingy abandoned building in his pants he clearly has no resources he's you know he can't do anything he's completely powerless at this mm -hmm. point and yeah it's it, it becomes even more ironic that yeah that tom is putting all this trust in wayne having a plan and clearly wayne has like pregnant teens all over the country and doesn't plan to do anything about it yeah absolutely yeah as you say Wayne Wayne rings and then he rings 
Tom, but then when Tom answers, Wayne says, who's this? Uh, which, again, just kind of em- emphasising how little Wayne cares. Or yeah, is thinking it's a bit about of foreshadowing here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Wayne asks uh, if Christine's still with him, and he says how much is left of the money that he was given. Uh, and I think Tom says something like, oh, there's, there's like six grand left, something like that. And Wayne seems quite surprised and pleasantly pleased about this. And he says, right, you need to take half of it and seal it under a a mailbox. And Tom goes, "Mm, okay, seems a bit sus, but I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, when do you want me to do this? Wayne's kind of losing his patience a bit. And you're getting this idea that he's actually maybe quite dangerous. Tom asks, what then? And he's like, don't fucking ask me what then, what now? just do it so he says this next line and it seems almost like scriptury he says yeah, Make it, it is so yeah oh do you, yeah. Do you have research? So, tom is trying to explain that christine is ill and then mm. wayne goes very prophetically naked i came from my mother's womb and naked i will depart which is drum roll it's a it's from the bible it's from the book of job and it is about, um, it's, it's from a moment when Job has lost a lot and he's still, he's kind of, he's saying that the Lord, it gives you, he gives you things, he takes them away and his faith is not wavering, uh, even though he's very down on his luck. So, I mean, the thing is, Job is kind of Matt's thing. So this definitely made me think about Matt. Yeah, I, I, I just found it quite interesting the way it went from quite a, scripturesque statement like that and then immediately after that he goes have you fucked her Tom have you put it in just a little bit so that that setup of the of the scripture and then just moving um straight into a kind of profanity yeah exactly it's kind of that it's that thing that we were trying to explain it's like yeah the sacred and the profane Mm -hmm. or the 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 high-minded and the vulgar it's that we yeah. see in these in these contemporary prophets they quote scripture at, at some point and then they're asking their followers if they're fucking their girls at another <laughs> the, the mary equivalent <laughs> like yeah <laughs> yeah it's exactly and also one last thing i want to say about that quote is that it has the word depart in it so naked i will depart mm. and when I was looking it up, I've noticed that depart is only like a very specific translation of it. Interesting. Uh, and there are like most translations uh, use another word. So I wanted oh, like to that. use that one on purpose. Nice, nice catch. Yeah. Oh, and then Wayne says, do what I said. It won't be long now. I suppose um, just kind of dragging him along. Keeping him on the hook, giving him a kind of give him a little bit more hope that oh yeah, just keep doing what you're doing and everything will go to plan when there's no fucking plan. Yeah, like I wonder if Wayne does think that there's a plan or not because then he yeah after the phone call he immediately like slides back down on his cot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't seem like a guy who is I don't know in the middle of a plan. Yeah, <laughs> relatable. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's not what I do some days. <laughs> that's how I finish most of my Zoom calls. It's like, okay, time for a nap. You deserve it. 
Okay, so we now jump back to Mapleton uh, and we're following Nora and Kevin as they're driving back to Nora's house for some fun evening activities. As they're driving up, they see two members of the Guilty Remnant outside, one of which is one of which is Meg. Kevin is very angry at this. He uh, angrily parks the car, he angrily opens the door and he angrily storms over to them and says, is this because of me? Are you here because of me? Pretty self-centered, aren't you, Kevin? I know, right? About you. So it's about Nora. Yeah, uh, it's like, oh, did Patty send you? And it's yeah. like, we have other business. It's not just <laughs> all about you. <laughs> Kevin's there getting all worked up with the GR. And then Nora just sprays them with like a water hose, which I thought yeah. was brilliant. Kevin um, is so impressed by this. <laughs> I love it. He's like, he looks oh. at her like, oh my god and then like I think the first thing he said inside is like that was fucking fantastic <laughs> it's so clearly something that he wishes he'd come up with many months ago so yeah there's a bit of a kind of explanation here so Nora says that the guilty remnants used to come to her house before they hadn't been there in a couple of months and then she's like uh, oh, I'm pretty sure they broke into my house and stole some photographs. And Kevin says, oh, yeah, the night of the dance, they did that. Kevin says something that's like, just mentions people who have had people departed. And then he's like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's almost like the word departed is a no word. Like she, mm. he, he feels like he can't talk about it at all in front of Nora because she's had so many of her family members depart. And then uh, Nora's like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And then Nora does the same thing and says something uh, a bit funny and jokey about uh, the guilty remnant and like the people that go and join. And then realizes that Kevin's uh, wife also did that. and was like, oh, fuck, sorry, sorry. So both of them putting their foot in, uh, foot in it a little bit. And Nora says, I just don't know how to talk to you. And Kevin says, I don't know how to talk to you either this is suggesting that they haven't spoken about these things in their four prior dates Nora says oh those fuckers ruined it then as in like ruined their plans for they've sex been, <laughs> yeah they've been cock blocked by the girlfriends <laughs> essentially <laughs> they're still keen to see each other but just yeah. they're not in the mood also the fact that like maybe the GR is still stood outside watching I, it's kind of understandable maybe exactly. that they don't want to do yeah. anything this scene ends so Kevin leaves and then we see the Garvey house. So he comes back home and Jill kind of questions him, like, were you, were you not supposed to be out tonight? And I was bracing myself for like, okay, is Jill going to be difficult? But actually she isn't. Her and yeah. Amy have been talking and Amy says, come on, ask him. She mm -hmm. wants to know. And, and Kevin is very on edge at this. So she yeah. goes like, what did grandpa do is like why uh did he hurt someone and it's like yeah just tell me why are you asking me that I think I think yeah I, I I was impressed with her with this episode particularly this scene because clearly she is a little torn on what to do her grandpa said please don't tell your dad that you saw me she obviously knows something bad happened and she's thinking well if something bad happened and I don't say anything and something bad happens yeah, and it's like as much as, as Jill is pretending to be this tough 
chaotic, I don't care if the world burns type of teen. She's actually, she is quite like a good girl and she does the right thing and she's got morals and she's, she's just a child and she wants, you know, she, she wants to talk mm-hmm. to her dad about it and she wants to do the right thing. So yes. here as well, we're getting very slowly, we're getting little bits about what Kevin Sr. has done, which mm-hmm. we don't know at this point. And, and Kevin lets us understand that he has hurt someone. Yeah, uh, and that leads Jill to 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 say that he's not in the hospital anymore, and she's she's seen him. Uh, then we jump to the police station. Uh, Dennis says something like, "Oh gosh, you can't like your daughter saw him. What are the odds of of that happening?" I wonder if he was expecting to see her when he opened the fridge or not. Well, according to yeah, because he when he later gives this narrative, it's like, "Oh yeah, no, I was just running away." I just saw people yelling at a fridge, I just opened it, and then he implies that he didn't and that he he received some message that she was in it and she was in danger and he needed to save her. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. what's implied. Kevin is in uh, action mode, he's obviously pulling people together to try and find his dad. Uh, he addresses the rest of the police officers. Uh, he goes, as you're aware, uh, our former chief began displaying some erratic behavior. And there's this dickhead cop who's just like, oh, erratic, he burned down the fucking library, which is a nice bit of exposition there where we find out what it was that he did um, mm-hmm. to, to get him put in this facility. Uh, and Kevin says, after which he voluntarily put himself in a psychiatric facility, which he has just walked out of. So someone asks, how should we handle it? What do we do if we see him? And Kevin tells them not to engage with him. Uh, And someone says, what does he want? What's he doing? And Kevin says, it doesn't matter. And then that annoying guy says something like, oh, well, what do we do if we find him in a violent situation? And we have, then we just have to, what do we do with that? And Kevin's like, well, then we have to stop him. Yeah, and I think here there's there's a nice little bit of tension about, you know, whether Kevin is going to give him preferential treatment because it's his dad yeah. or not. And clearly the guy who's who's challenging him, who's the same guy co- who called Aftec that time after Gladys's murder, um, oh, so clearly not okay. a big fan of Kevin, kind of undermining Kevin a little bit. It's almost like the guy is challenging him to go be nice to him instead of saying try to stop him which is what he actually says so mm-hmm. i feel like kevin here is is attempting to be very fair and to assess the situation kind of objectively but he also seems genuinely alarmed at his dad being out and what he might do mm-hmm. and there is this kind of mounting sense of danger of his dad is about to do something bad which is it's, it's slightly surprising, I think, you know, it was to me because you like you don't th- you've seen him being quite docile and lucid yeah. so far. You don't think he's the kind of guy who would be dangerous. But clearly the way they're talking about him, it's like this is fucking serious. Yeah. And the same in the in the in the next scene where Kevin goes mm. to Lucy's house, the mayor, who we've learned was having a relationship with his dad. And the first thing that she asks. So obviously she has no idea what Kevin is talking about. She doesn't know that Kevin Sr. has escaped. 
And the first thing that she asks is, has he hurt someone? So that's like, that's everyone's first thought. This guy's going to hurt someone. I also thought that her reaction was a little bit unfair. So he's like, is, is he here? And she goes, fuck you, Kevin. I haven't talked to him for a month. Like, how, how would Kevin know this? <laughs> I, yeah, I did, I did kind of feel bad for him because I thought, well, the last that Kevin knew, those two were in a relationship and seeing each other. So obviously you would come mm-hmm. to that place. Even if they weren't seeing each other at the time, you would obviously come to that place thinking maybe this is where he's mm. gone. And she's like, he's not coming to me, Kevin. He's coming to you. Um, just ominous. We follow Kevin back home. Uh, it's late. It's nighttime. He's sat on his couch and he's got the police radio on. He's listening out to it. He sits back on his couch. And he hears something, he hears something whimpering and scratching at the door. He stands up and he slowly walks towards the door. He pulls it open and he sees the dog man. Dean. Dean. Dean says, come on, chief, I've got one trapped for us. Uh, We assume that the one is a dog uh, and we see in the camera uh, focuses a little bit on a mailbox uh, that's across the street. And it sounds now, it's strange because at first it sounded like the whimpering and the scratching was like right at the door and then the door opens and then the sound travels and you can see the sounds coming from the mailbox. And also we're seeing flashes of a dog, not quite, that's not quite in the scene. Right. Either fighting with another dog or biting someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So he walks out of the door, he walks down the porch and then he hears someone shout his name and it's Tommy and Tommy shouts him and we turn around, we follow him turn around and he looks at the door and he sees Tommy looking very angrily at him and he slams the door behind him. This, this was another thing where I kind of thought about it in, in terms of crossing, crossing over, crossing a line. It almost seemed like Kevin has left the security of his house which I think is something that you've brought up in the past this idea of like boundaries and securing boundaries and crossing boundaries the the house alarm and who is trespassing and who is coming into Kevin's house Mm -hmm. yeah do we want to talk about Tom's thing for a bit here because first of all like the mailbox I feel like it's very obviously referenced to the mailbox in Tom's storyline yeah, I mean, there's a few, right? There's there's the mailbox. There's the 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 hand yeah. injury. Yeah. Um. There is a phone gets destroyed in both by both. Yeah. And both are looking for someone, right? So so Kevin Junior's looking for his dad, and Tom is looking for Wayne, his who, dad, in a sense, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're both looking for their dad, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I, I agree. There's a very prominent parallel that has been drawn here. Definitely. Yeah. Tom slams the door on him uh, and Kevin continues walking towards the mailbox with the supposed dog inside it. I mean, we definitely, I think it was a little bit vague at the start. Like you think, oh, is it a dream? Is it not? I think by this point you, you're certain it's a dream. Uh, get more of the clips of the, the dogs fighting. So Kevin, in the dream, pulls up this big gun, 
-hmm. and holds it up and points at the mailbox and then there's a a flash of him at a different time wearing different clothes holding um, a pistol and he's got a cut on his forehead uh, and and we see that happening at a different time it's very short flash of it and then it flashes back to the present dream and he lowers the gun and he says I don't want to shoot them and he Mm -hmm. starts crying he looks to his left and he sees the truck and in the truck are piles of dead bodies of the guilty remnant uh, all of whom seem to have uh, bloody injuries and one of whom is Laurie who has a uh, bullet shot into her forehead and they also have plastic bags over their heads Mm -hmm. I thought that the flash to an earlier scene with with Kevin shooting the dogs was a reference to the first episode but is that what it was because I couldn't place when he had that injury yeah you're right I don't remember but that's that's what I thought at the time yeah I thought that too but then I also thought it could be a premonition it could be something in the future that might be happening I think here it's clearly linking the dogs with the GR Mm -hmm. right it's that fight in in him whether he needs to protect the town from the GR or protect the GR from the town or from themselves right he's stuck about what to do he doesn't want to shoot them he doesn't want to have them as enemies or antagonists he doesn't want to to go against his his wife his ex-wife and and he also doesn't literally he doesn't want to kill them or he doesn't want to, to put them in danger so dogs are finally my motif of the week um, after having been brought up so much <laughs> and they are also accompanied by an old caps note that says everyone is a dog so let me unpack okay. that <laughs> so i'm thinking yeah obviously the dogs have been linked to the gr so far um and also we've heard about the dogs in that first episode where the idea is that the dogs who have witnessed the departure have gone mad because they can't make sense of it so also we've heard the dogs in the speech that wayne has given to nora about it's better to uh live as a dog than to die as a lion or something like that is that how right it yeah yeah the way that i'm thinking about it is that i'm starting to see a the the dogs as sort of traumatized individuals traumatized citizens traumatized members of kevin's family that kevin is failing to protect in a sense Mm. he is it is people who and the guilty remnants are part of it because kevin wants to protect him and we've seen kevin try to keep the guilty remnants safe in a sense uh, but being very frustrated because they refuse to be safe. They refuse to be saved, um, like the poster says. And I'm thinking at this point that dogs are these, are a representation of being broken and being hurt and being traumatized by this event. And Kevin, in his role as a father, as a husband, as a policeman, all of that stuff, he is not able to put this town back together. He's not able to keep the citizens safe. He's not able to keep his family safe. And in this light, I think what he decides in this dream sequence, the idea that he doesn't want to shoot the dogs, 
And then the way that he ends up adopting one of these dogs is this sense of him attempting to deal with creatures that are very hurt and that are reacting unpredictably. And you could see so many people in this. You could see Jill, you could see Tom, you could see Nora, you could see Laurie. Essentially, everyone that Kevin deals with is a sort of dog. I like Including that himself, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's why I wrote everyone oh, is a dog. A dog. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So the quote uh, that was mentioned by... Wayne uh, is surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Yeah, and like these, the people of Mapleton are live dogs. They are, some of them have gone wild. Some of them are just a bit traumatized. Some of them don't quite know what to do. And, and, and in these, and in his dreams, he's kind of acting out his frustration at not being able to protect these people by shooting them and going like then I fucking want to get rid of you and I suppose he has a similar kind of abusive self-care relationship with himself (laughs) oh dear yeah oh Kevin uh so he walks up to the mailbox uh it quietens down as he gets to it and then he opens the mailbox and the dog jumps up and snaps at him. And we see his hand on the mailbox as it's lifting it up. And as the dog jumps and snaps at him, it cuts to the morning. And we have a close-up shot of Kevin lying on the floor face down with his hand right near his face. Uh, so we can see that his hand is injured and bandaged up. So I suppose the immediate assumption we make is that the dog has bitten him. The dream was part not dream and that he has had to bandage his hand up uh, and and yeah, yeah. stop the bleeding. However, as he unwraps it, it looks a little, a little bit human to me. I don't know what kind of dog has that bite mark. I don't know about you. I just assumed it was the dog. Um, I did as well. And then I thought it looked very narrow and, and human shaped. Um, so some people on Reddit equally seem to think that his teeth marks looked quite human. Yeah. Um, and have various hypotheses, like he could have encountered Kevin Sr. during this night and he might have bit him. Also, no, I was very pleased with this. Someone referenced the denture from episode two. Wow, maybe the denture is haunted and bit him. <laughs> we don't, I don't think, that, I don't think it's trying to tell us that a person bit him. I wonder whether it's just another way to, to put in our heads the dogs are the people. So yeah, basically when he, he, he gets up and he looks at his bite, he's obviously half-naked. He gets dressed um, and he goes downstairs. Well, no, he we hear barking and he looks down into his yard and there yeah. is a big dog tied up in it. Um, and then he goes downstairs and Jill asks, um, did you find him? And at the start, like I was thinking, and I think you're meant to think like, is she talking about the dog? Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Like, yeah. 
and then obviously she's referring to her granddad mm-hmm. and Kevin didn't yeah then um Jill kind of asks about the dog like so I guess we have a dog now uh, and Jill instead of Kevin Amy explains it Amy says oh well your dad brought him home last night I can't believe he didn't wake up which then suggests that uh, Kevin came home with the dog and Amy was there and there was like a, a discussion, a chat that they had uh, that Kevin clearly can't remember. Mm, very uh, So Jill says, oh, well, I guess we have a dog now. Is the dog ours now? And again, Amy continues to answer for Kevin and says, oh, well, he says he's going to rehabilitate it. Uh, and then he, she addresses Kevin and says, well, how's your hand? Did you put uh, Neosporin on it like I told you to? Yeah, this is like an attempt of Kevin to heal someone who has gone or some creature that has supposedly gone crazy after witnessing the departure. Yeah. And I suppose for Kevin, it, it's maybe a bit easier for him to try and help or fix a dog. Yeah. Than to try and help and fix the many of the things that are going wrong in Mapleton and the world for him. Yeah. Then we have uh, the horrible moment of realize of, of Kevin uh, getting a call and goes over and he sees that Dennis has been beaten up and it's actually really quite sad I feel mm-hmm. I felt so bad for Kevin uh, for Dennis here yeah I know he's, he's been beaten to a pulp and then Kevin's like oh what happened <laughs> and Dennis is like well someone tried to get in so I went over to try and talk to him <laughs> uh, so there's a, a cut to Kevin senior beating the shit out of Dennis uh, really quite brutal. Mm. Kevin Senior's obviously gone back to this place that he previously burned down. Obviously, they're going to try and apprehend him. And for him to say, oh, why did you do your job? I just thought it was pretty shitty. Mm. Uh, you could have just been like, oh, I'm really sorry. I hope you're okay. Yeah, and then it's just like, well, he always liked me. I thought I'd yeah. oh, that was so him. Sad. <laughs> oh, that was really sad. I felt really bad for him. Dennis MVP Dennis actually that's mine nice. MVP Dennis I'm you pretty sure have it. I done him before <laughs> no I think we joked about it but it's no MVP enough. Dennis so so uh I think it, it's a little bit vague at first where here is uh, where they are but uh, then Kevin walks inside and sees that it's a, it's the library uh, everything's been uh, pulled off the shelves it's a real mess uh, and he's wandering through and seeing the destruction that Kevin seniors left behind he walks up to the man who works here and says, did you see the man who did this? The guy says, no hablo inglés, I don't speak English. Uh, and Kevin responds in Spanish uh, and starts asking him questions about, about what his dad was doing. Uh, the guy says that he was using the computer, he broke it, and then asked to borrow £200. Kevin asks if he gave his dad the £200 and the gentleman says no. Kevin asked, did he say what he needed it for? And the answer is that he said he needed to get something. Uh, Kevin turns to walk away and the man finishes by saying he needed to get something for his son. Yeah. One thing that I thought of uh, when Kevin walks into this kind of scene of destruction, which was then confirmed, I think, later on, uh, was the this idea of the of the stag going into the into indoor places and destroying yeah. them like it really reminded me of that scene yeah. that, we, that we've seen before of 
like an interior being destroyed mm-hmm. and it's and because it was- the stag got trapped in there mm-hmm. I'm sure as well in the following scene in which uh, Jill is in the kitchen making some food for her granddad I'm sure that the kitchen is still quite messed yeah. up yeah exactly. from from when the stag destroyed it the last time yeah the, and and Kevin senior asks about it yeah so yeah yeah I saw this when I saw the library and then I was like oh okay I think that was maybe a deliberate allusion to that because then they mentioned it later on yeah definitely so I guess yeah Kevin again like Kevin senior being equated with these animals that have gone mad post departure right yeah yeah so we then jump uh, back to Tom uh, so here again we're having this link with the mailbox from Kevin Stream and the mailbox that Tom has to attach money to oh there's another link as well so uh, Tom is obviously dealing with, with money with cash um, he's handling cash uh, we also see later Kevin handling the cash and dealing with the, the uh, envelopes cash um, sorry the, the, the peanut butter jarred cash not envelopes uh, that's buried in his, his, his garden so there's some interesting parallels mm. I think we should discuss that more at the end once we've seen them all yeah I think it, yeah it, I think they're coming up more and more so yeah obviously here we get the the kind of famous uh mailbox the fame the the main mailbox scene where it's... ah the famed mailbox <laughs> I know it well <laughs> um the the prominent mailbox scene where so Tom arrives uh, with his car to this location that Wayne indicated he gets this envelope with uh, with cash in it he runs to the mailbox tapes it underneath and runs back to his car um, he, he he turns it on ready to go and then he changes his mind and actually turns the engine off and and he's gonna wait and I don't know like I don't know if I want to overthink the mailbox and think about a point of communication especially as it appears in between like both in Kevin's and Tom's storylines and they always have trouble communicating yeah and I wonder if it's like a little point of exchange and communication yeah maybe another imagery of like a bridge a linking point crossing between two spaces the mailbox also is at a street crossing if Mm -hmm. i remember correctly yes yes at the crossing of of two streets (laughs) i don't know why i said i saw that you said oh it's at a a street crossing oh yes at the crossing of two streets yes so back to jill so jill jill hears uh the dog getting a bit rowdy outside uh, so Jill hears that the dog is kicking off a bit, goes outside and sees her grandpa fighting the dog with a bin lid and trying to pull back his, his uh, shirt or his jacket or something. Mm-hmm. Jill goes outside and says, hey, what you doing? Uh, and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to say, I'm not at liberty to say. Uh, so she, she watches them grapple a little bit, go back and forth, trying to pull the shirt off the dog. Uh, and she just kind of says are you hungry uh, and he says yep yeah, I'm a bit hungry and then they move inside leaving the dog outside Jill opens the fridge 
the fridge or the, the bridge the fr is the fridge the bridge is the fridge the key to the whole departure <laughs> perhaps jill starts making him some food uh, and she opens the fridge and and he makes a joke like try not to get trapped in there obviously alluding back to the moment earlier where she got trapped in a fridge and so jill asks him how did you know how did you know that i was in there and needed help uh, he says that he didn't. He said that he, he walked out the back door of where he is living and he just started running. A few minutes later, he came to an uh, idiot shouting at the fridge. And she kind of laughs and she's like, oh, well, do you expect me to believe that? And he says, not really. So here we're kind of seeing his perspective of what happened with the fridge incident. So for him, it's implied that he didn't know what was happening. He didn't know why, but he was being told that he needed to get out and go to this area to do something. And mm -hmm. that something appeared to be saving his grandma. Yeah, or maybe from he suffocating. was maybe he was even told specifically to to go and save Jill. Who knows? Yeah, but so, but the way I interpreted that was like basically he didn't know was part of the official story. I, I, I read it more as like I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing but the voices told me I had to go do something important so I did it and then I, this okay. happened so she asks uh, your voices can you hear them right now and he goes yes I can and she asks what are they saying and uh, he says that they're saying that you look like Snow White so I thought this was an interesting comparison um, because Snow White talks to animals Oh, no, I didn't think of that one. So I was thinking, so Snow White obviously eats the apple, um, goes into this death-like coma, and then is put in a glass coffin. She's like kind of trapped in this glass coffin until she comes and gets saved. So I thought that was kind of a parallel to yeah. her getting trapped in the fridge, which is not a glass, but kind of like That's a coffin. Fun. Yeah. Especially linking back to your uh, analysis of her being like laid down on her back and like the thing opening up and it being a little bit coffin-like. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I like that that sounds nice he then asks for money and then asks for tranquilizers he goes up to Kevin's room they root through uh, his, his cupboards and they see a lot of tranquilizers uh, yeah then... like the room is littered with pill containers yeah and so he queries you know why, why is your dad taking all this shit uh, and and she responds she's kind of a little bit protective i felt she, she's like mm -hmm. oh he's he's under a lot of pressure uh, and he's he... been very mature here uh and, yeah. and kind of understanding which was again sweet uh, and they have a little chat about about tom asking where where is he um he, he asks he says oh we need some meat presumably to put in the uh, tranquilizers and then give to the dog uh he he has a little argument with his voices so, so uh, Jill asks, why are you drugging the dog? And I presume the voices say something like, annoyed at Jill for asking a question. And she, he turns to the voices and says, oh, she's just trying to help. Like, what do you think I'm doing? Blah, blah, blah. And then Kevin Jr. gets home. Uh, the alarm goes off. He gets pretty shouty. And he's like, Jill, Jill, where are you? And Jill looks like a little bit sheepish. And Kevin Sr. is just like, well all right when did you call him then and she says before I let you in so this was another moment where I just thought well she's clearly 
she's been super mature about all this i i was under the impression that maybe she was just like letting him in and hadn't said anything which like fair enough but mm-hmm. she obviously thought right i know what's happened in the past uh with him despite the fact that he's my my granddad uh i should call my dad and let him know because also my dad is super worried and something bad could happen uh and even even kevin senior acknowledges this he says like oh good one or a like, good girl or something yeah he says good girl which yeah. I thought again is sweet because like obviously he has his plan and this is a massive spanner in the works but yeah. still he's not going to take it out on 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 his granddaughter you know and, she's and, the right yeah. thing and then there's another I just got orky standoff written down uh, there's an awkward standoff between junior and senior uh and senior says my borrowed your sweatshirt which was quite funny uh, and yeah instead of cuffing him uh kevin jr throws senior the cuffs so that he can cuff himself which he just does immediately there's there's no arguing or anything and uh he leads him out as he leads him out jill then picks up the piece of paper which we now know has the the details of the national geographic art um, issue written on it then we get the kevins there in the car going back to the psychiatric hospital presumably mm-hmm. and uh, Kevin senior is making conversation he asks how Dennis is which seems a bit yeah mean Does, and- <laughs> yeah I mean he has self-awareness he's aware that what he's doing isn't great and he's aware that what is happening isn't normal but it's just like he doesn't he doesn't care in the moment or or he just rationalize it as like well this person's in my way so I need to do this thing to to progress to the next stage we're told that he beat up Dennis because he got in his way um he just he destroyed the computer did he do that out of anger was he annoyed that the library didn't have it in or that it cost 200 pounds was that just an aggression mm. an aggressive moment and, and he can't control his anger or was that a I don't want people to know what I'm doing, so I must destroy this computer. Was it more of a measured act? <laughs> we don't have any idea what that was about, so we don't know how to judge it. It's and like I'm- maybe someone should have told him about incognito mode. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that does the job yeah. just as fine as smashing <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And here, yeah, he seems just very to sincerely be inquiring after Dennis. And Kevin is understandably pissed off. And then he asks Kevin how he's sleeping and he, because he noticed all these pills and he says that shit fucks with your head, which, which kind of goes some way towards explaining what Kevin is experiencing. And then Kevin Senior is like, do you want to know, don't you want to know why I got out? And Kevin is like, I don't need this. And Kevin Senior is like, maybe it's exactly what you need. And they're just having a bit of a fight and Kevin gets distracted and Kevin Senior yells, stop. Suddenly they're in a street that is full of uh, guilty remnants demonstrating and he he's about to, to run over some of them. So, but yeah, in any case, he uses this moment to get out of the car and run. And Kevin is pursuing him. And so basically the GR are holding some kind of protest where they've mm-hmm. taken these posters of Gladys and they've put don't before um, save them. So they just say don't save them. 
the guilty remnants are very much at the periphery of this episode we don't see them a lot yeah um but here yeah they're clearly they have a little narrative they clearly they're pissed off by the posters and then they you know modified the posters and they're having a protest about them and it's yeah. still unclear at this stage who made the posters and why yeah so as as kevin is is kind of chasing kevin senior through the crowd he knocks over patty and mm -hmm. patty meg and laurie are all kind of glaring at him because i thought this was like unnecessarily dramatic obviously Same. he's going through some shit and he's like chasing someone that is handcuffed so like clearly he's doing police things and they look so offended and so like upset the gr wasn't even in his mind at that moment it's not like he did it on purpose but maybe that's kind of linked to that it's like they're they're reminding him oh aren't you paying us any attention this week <laughs> maybe it goes both ways they think he thinks oh it's all about me and they think oh it's all about us like they just think that each other or each the other's antagonist always and that they can't have other things going on and they can't have yeah. <laughs> they're like each other's nemesis yeah. like... uh, this is the second moment where that that music plays mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's as as kevin chases uh, kevin senior through the crowd and uh, he disappears and kevin looks both ways looks all around him and he can't see him and he just kind of disappeared departed perchance yeah i was thinking that so Kevin then walks back through the the guilty remnant, and we cut back to Jill. Jill has the Jill's in a bedroom. She's uh, with the twins who are being their twinny selves. Uh, they're fighting, uh, and she's she's ordering something. So she's on her laptop. She's got the piece of paper. She's got a credit card, and she seems to be ordering something. Amy comes in, uh, and the twins say, "How long is it going to take to get ready to go to this party that they're going to go to?" And uh, Amy says not long at all because I'm not going uh, and then Jill says something like what are you going to do you're just going to stay here and hang out with my dad and she goes no because your dad is never home when you are out he always goes out whenever you go out and also she insinuates that that Jill's dad may have yeah. a lady friend which made me think that really Jill this is the beginning of Jill's starting to insinuate that something's going on between Amy and her dad. Yeah. And she's uh, really displacing some fears about her dad getting a new girlfriend. I yeah. feel it, because her reaction when Amy says, I feel he has a lady friend, she's like, yeah, no, fine. So I was like, I'm fine. I don't even care. And it's like, no, but you do because you're like weirdly insinuating that something's going on between him and Amy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's pretty uncomfortable. She just I, has mommy issues and she's she taking them out in Amy. Tom is still uh, standing vigil at the mailbox. He watches someone drive up, grab the money and drive off again. Tom chases the man who's taking the money. Uh, goes up to the house that he walked into, knocks on the door, uh, asks about Wayne, says, is Wayne here? And the guy goes, well, what do you want? Something like that. Uh, and then he just breaks into the door, uh, through the door. He, he breaks down the door, he breaks into the house and he starts yelling, he starts going, I know you're in here, Wayne, barges through another door and there's a pregnant lady in there. Yeah, so we don't immediately see 
we don't immediately see what he's seen, but he clearly kind of stops in his tracks and like, mm-hmm. shit, mm-hmm. he's seen something here. And then we see, and it's not a, just a pregnant lady, it's a pregnant Asian teen. So it's pretty obvious what's yeah. going on um, here. Like, I think it's, yeah, it's quite, yeah. Like, Sorry, there's, really, a- there's another Christine somewhere else. Yeah, there's another pregnant girl and her protector, essentially. Uh, and oh. then the alternative Christine says, how does he know about Wayne? And then uh, Tom I says... I know what you're going to say, like, what the fuck is this response? What the fuck? Honestly, I have one too. Oh, I have one too. One of her. Like, so he's both... Could like, you say I... it in such a dehumanizing way? Yeah. Like, eh. Like, I have Honestly. one, you don't have it, you're just traveling with her. So many problems with that sentence. Yeah, like, one of her, he's talking to the guy, talking about this other girl in the third person while she's in the room. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's clearly all about them have been saddled with these pregnant girls. Yeah, and also, like, I... I have one as if it's an it as if it's a something as if it's something to be like oh yeah oh I've got one of them oh my god <laughs> so objectifying yeah. like and I can't tell I can't tell if it's if it's a purposeful thing to make us frust- to, to, to make us feel this frustration at Tom because Tom Tom he's he's a flawed guy sure but we are seeing all of this from his perspective and it seems like a bit of a it's all about how this is affecting him and it's yeah. all about how he's been he is trapped with this pregnant woman and like poor tom and i actually don't think if 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 it is hinted at that maybe he should be considering christine's viewpoint here the show doesn't go much towards actually considering it yeah and yeah and these girls really their only personality is that they're in love with Wayne like it's not like we see any hint of resistance coming from them it's all about like yeah they don't doubt why they are stuck with a shitty in like a shitty shack with a guy who doesn't know how to make soup, you know, it's never never about how shitty the situation is for Christine, who's probably about 14 years old and Mm -hmm. pregnant, like, yeah, honestly, I, I, yeah, I think it's a, perhaps a tiny bit of a blind spot. Yeah, I agree. But (sighs) if any listeners want to prove us wrong, um, I'd be, I'd be interested. Mm, Please do. So we're back at the garbage. So Amy's having some ice cream. She's obviously stayed home from this party. She's sat watching TV. And then Kevin comes home. uh, The dog is barking. And Amy goes, you might want to feed that thing. You know, your dog. Uh, And he's being very awkward with her. He's like, Uh, (laughs) that that was a a very good impression, by the way. I hope you appreciate that. It actually was, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, and Amy says, you don't remember last night getting a dog? And he's like, oh, I do remember. And then she says, then what did you say to me when I bandaged up your hand? And then he says, 
we really like having you here with us, Amy. Do you like it here? And she's like, well, yeah. And he says, good. I'm sorry. What a fucking dick. You don't even know what happened, Kevin. So just shut the fuck up. You can't yeah. threaten a young girl that you have allowed to stay with you. Yeah, who like is having a shitty home life if, if this is the best that she can do is, is, is stay with Kevin, father of the year. Like, don't fucking, don't you dare threaten her. Oh, we really like having with you. Wouldn't want, w- wouldn't want to do anything to change that, would we, Amy? Oh, I have hated him. Quite that. It was uh, quite a low moment for Kevin, I agree. Like, she is just trying to be nice. And he's just being a bit of a dick. No, I agree. And again, people take this scene as evidence that they are sleeping together. But again, I'm not convinced. I don't think there's anything about the way that Amy talks about what happened last night that should make us think that they have sex. I feel like maybe Kevin thinks that something untoward happened and that's why he's being awkward. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that I can believe. So the fact that Kevin... Which is, which is so bad in itself because he believes that he would do such a thing. Yeah, so I think, I, think you, I think you've nailed this. The thing that I don't believe is that Amy is having sex with Kevin. Yeah. And no, I don't think that Amy is lying to, to Jill when she, says, when she says that they don't interact very much. But it is possible that Kevin does think because mm-hmm. he had that dream he does think that something may have happened and that's why he's getting so defensive here. Yeah. Because um, he just doesn't remember and he thinks he might have done something. So that Which, which makes this, this phrase, this interaction, all the more worse because if, if he thinks that he's done that and he is, instead of being like, look, I'm so sorry, I've been taking this medication, let's sit down, what happened? I just want to make sure that you feel safe and I've not done anything wrong. Yeah. Instead of doing that, he fucking threatens to kick her out. Yeah, that's Nah, bad, bad day for, for Kevin, sorry. Yeah. No, for sure, agreed. He, he throws out his pills. So I think that he's been, I think he's been kind of thrown by, by his dad saying that thing about the pills yeah. and him sleeping. And so he throws out all the pills. Yeah, he, he throws, throws out the all the pills. And then he goes to the fridge to get a steak for the dog. <laughs> he goes and gives the steak to this poor dog who hasn't eaten presumably in hours. While the dog is eating, he starts tidying up around the kind of patio area. And he finds the peanut butter jar with the cash and the, the flyer that Matt had made. So we've seen this in the Matt episode. Mm-hmm. And clearly that was what Kevin Sino was looking for in, in the backyard. So at this point, he goes to see Matt in a very angry state. So Matt is not there, but there are a bunch of people in his house who are making these uh, Gladys posters. So we yeah. figure out who's been making these posters. So there's a little, a little narrative there where, where Matt has clearly been continuing in his mission, you know, just trying to save the guilty remnants, try to help yeah. them in his usual frustrating way for them. He basically yells at uh, Mary's carer and wants to talk to Matt on the phone. She, she calls Matt on the phone because Kevin is, is questioning her. Um, and then Kevin takes the phone and he starts yelling at Matt. Like, I know he's with you, blah, blah, blah. And then Matt says, he's, you know, he's almost ready to see you. Uh, and Kevin is not happy at this. 
Matt's like, he wants to, he's almost ready to see you, but you need to get something first. And then he says, what the fuck are you talking about? No, I'm going to see him now. Shut the fuck up, Matt. Uh, another fantastic Kevin impression. Uh, and then Matt says something like, right, okay, 90 minutes, this diner on the corner of this and this road. And then uh, Kevin very kindly uh, thanks the woman her pho- lending him her phone by smashing it on the floor. Kevin is losing it. But clearly, yeah, his thing with his dad is, is, is surely triggering some, some... Yeah, I mean, not only is it obviously issues related just to his father, but he's clearly also concerned about his own issues emerging yeah, yeah, yeah. and whether the issues that have been ongoing with his father are the same issues that are happening with him and if he's looking into his future by looking at everything yeah he's... exactly it's the same stuff it comes up this like parallel with his dad and it comes up from the very beginning in the police station was like the former chief started to exhibit erratic behavior and the same thing could be said about what kevin has been doing so yeah you're so right parallel escapes him Mm-hmm. So Definitely. He, yeah, he's pretty scared. So yeah, so Tom is sat with Alt Tom and Alt Christine, and Alt Tom is doing lines of cocaine, I assume. Um, and they have a little chat. Alt Tom says, "Oh, so you were there the night of the raid? Then you went through the same thing. They clearly did the same thing. They were given the responsibility of looking after a girl." Uh, and uh, we're told the exact same thing. Alt Tom starts the sentence and says, Wayne looked at me and said, this girl, and Tom finishes it, she's everything. It's this implication that they've both experienced the exact same thing. They've both been told the exact same thing, that this the girl who's, who's pregnant is special and that they need to protect this girl and the baby is also special. Yeah, and I think this cast, such an interesting light on the on the baby Jesus episode when we Mm -hmm. were saying that there's this parallel between uh, Christine's baby and the baby Jesus and the whole point about the baby Jesus that he's been replaced he can be replaced is there only one are there multiple ones and then obviously we find out that Christine's baby is in a similar network of replaceability and in a situation where the baby is not special and they're just like what at least one more if not more that are just the same even if wayne had a plan which is debatable uh it could be that at this point some of the pregnant girls are like a contingency plan he's creating potential replacements for the one jesus or he's just chatting absolute shit i think he does think that these babies are actually special in some way but he's just not following through and he's just clearly he's lost a lot of money he's down on his luck and he's not set this up properly and he it's all a very self-centered operation but I think Mm -hmm. in some way he does think that the babies are special oh oh Christine uh, clearly is not happy with the news that she is not the the only pregnant uh, girl that that Wayne has blessed with a child again we hit, we have some of that uncomfortable language of her going which one which girl who who was it that you're with who was it that that is now pregnant 
uh, and someone else, I think maybe Tom says, or, or maybe Alt Tom says, how many others do you think that he's got? Mm. Uh, and, and Tom goes, does it matter? And then Alt Tom does a line and says, did he ever hug you? Because he did it to me and it was unreal. He took away all my pain. Yeah, he's clearly doing so well. Oh, I'd love a hug. <laughs> and then I think Tom is aware of the irony of this and he starts laughing. Yeah, he laughs quite hysterically and, and yeah. sort of emptily. Um, <laughs> and and uh, just to finish the, the comedy, um, old Christine just starts shooting at them both. In a world that is devoid of meaning, that has had meaning taken away, that has had this irrational event happen that cannot be rationalised, she's been given meaning and she's been given purpose She's been taken advantage of, and then she just found out that all that meaning and purpose has been taken away. Mm. And these two men are talking to each other about it and about her, and not really like checking in on her and not really talking to her. Yeah, you'd be pretty pissed off. So she comes out shooting at them both uh, in just like absolute frustration and, and sadness. Yeah. And then Tom uh, gets out, he gets in his car. His with hand, a hand yeah his hand is injury and we see a very obvious kind of continuity shot where you see kevin's hand in like the exact same position and he's injured too they're injured on the same hand yeah um and kevin is sitting at a oh yeah he's sitting at the cafe he's talking to backup on the police radio he clearly has like officers outside it's all set up to get his dad as soon as he turns up and then he turns up, Kevin Sr., Matt arrives, and Kevin Sr. asks if he can take his handcuffs off. Sr.'s like, look, I, I know that, there, that the police is surrounding this area. I know you're going to arrest me. I'm not going to try and run. And again, seeming very rational, very lucid, which is somehow in contrast to what he does later. But at this point, he's like, this guy is the most rational crazy madman chased by the police that has ever existed <laughs> yeah yeah he talks to kevin and he says i wanted to keep you out of it but they wouldn't stop and he has this this paper bag and he finally kind of reveals what's in and it's a an issue of the national geographic mm -hmm. and he says to kevin like you need to accept it in a very pointed manner Kevin is perplexed at this and, and he and Kevin Sr. explains that like that there are the lucky ones to get to stay out of it, but there Kevin and himself are in the fucking game now. Uh, because the whistle blew it's three years ago and we can't ignore it anymore. And he says, Your services are being requested. This is your invitation, this is your purpose. I just think it's a random issue. No, I don't think there's something in the issue itself that is an interpretative key for what's going on. Yeah, yeah, basically. We can wonder why this specific object has, you know, is Kevin's invitation and Kevin needs to accept it. But we could just equally see it as it's just an object that could be any other object that Kevin needs to accept. Mm -hmm. So I'm just looking at the front page here and 
the picture is of a bear on its hind legs and there's people behind like taking photos of it and being dangerously close to it and there's a little bit of writing at the bottom that says beware of bears ignoring park rules sightseers corner a hungry animal nine yellowstone visitors were mauled last year so i feel like that kind of links to the idea of kevin with the dogs right so he's he's yeah maybe trying to tame the dog yeah trying to tame them forgetting that they are actually wild animals ignoring the rules of what he should be doing with them that sounds like a thematic connection so yeah and at this like kevin kind of changes the subject a little bit and and confronts his dad about some stuff that has been on his mind and he says where did you go you left me when i needed you and I'm assuming he's referring to when, you know, he went mad, quote unquote, after yeah. his departure. But and it's an interesting phrasing, isn't it? it it's mm-hmm. touching on this idea of alternate departures. So obviously his wife was a consequence of the departure, a departed that didn't physically depart, but left or, or was influenced yeah, um, the by the event. The, the casualties, yeah. It's it's interesting that Kevin, although no one in his close family departed, he actually had two people who left in one way or yeah. the other and had yeah. two consequences of the departure occur to him and his close family. Yeah, that's true. You're right. And also what I was thinking here was, a, again, a parallel with Tom, who has been abandoned by his biological yeah. dad and also by Wayne, his big father slash god figure and kevin says you know i don't i don't accept your invitation i'm not gonna leave my family and kevin senior does he hit him at this point yeah he punches him yeah so he punches him and he really starts losing it here in a way that is quite unexpected because again he's been he's been talking to the voices he's been getting increasingly upset or like not upset but passionate about what he's talking about mm-hmm. but still within the boundaries of a regular conversation I would say mm-hmm. up until this point yeah definitely um and this is the third time in this episode that this uh, choral music pipes up uh which I suppose kind of disrupts the expectation so the first two times were arguably quite divine moments Kevin Sr. saving his granddaughter randomly, being told the place to go, and uh, it seemed quite heavenly. Secondly, Kevin uh, Sr. disappearing, somehow knowing exactly what moment to tell his son to stop, even though he wasn't looking at the road, and then running off and disappearing into the nothing. And yet here, this is a very human kind of base moment, right? This This is a moment where he's just, he's just beating up his son. And he's just like being wrestled into handcuffs. Yeah, I think you're right. But I also wonder now if 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 this music is a is a sort of motif for Kevin Senior. And yeah. if the core music <laughs> is meant to represent the 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 voices, the multiplicity of voices that he's interacting oh, with. I like that a lot. So maybe this is why it's it's his little motif that comes up whenever mm-hmm. um he's having a, a big moment in the episode that's a that's a nice point it's yeah. like the voice is winning or something like that or 
the voices that representing the voices getting louder in his head. I also thought that the things that he was saying whilst he's he's uh, kicking off, he says, "You don't want what I have, then I relieve you of it. Go back to sleep. Don't wake up. Um, go back to sleep." So obviously, you have the initial interpretation of just go back to sleep, be unaware, don't listen to what I'm saying, don't listen to what's actually happening. But interesting as well in terms of Kevin sleepwalking and his actions when he's sleeping. It's 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 almost like a threat, right? It's it's him saying go back to sleep, but then it's when he's asleep that he's doing all these things that he's unaware of. When he's he seems to be most open. So at this point, they're like fighting in the middle of the diner, and Matt is also starting to get worried. And then the next scene, they are bringing him back to the hospital or to a cell. And Matt and and Kevin are are with him, and he says to Matt come come see me next Sunday and Matt says of course because Matt is always this kind of guy and then Kevin Sr. hugs Kevin Jr. and he says they're not gonna let you off so easy which we assume he's talking about the voices right yeah and and whoever is this day that want him to do something or to be mm-hmm. part of something so yeah they're they're then <laughs> They're then going back to their car, and I think it's so funny. <laughs> and Matt, before he gets into his car, he stops in a very poignant way, and he starts quoting scripture. <laughs> and Kevin just interrupts him and just says, fuck you, and he just gets into his car. Like, he's not saying <laughs> he, It's not Matt's time for Matt's prophetic. scripture today. <laughs> I mean, let's look at that quote then, shall we? Yeah, uh, let's look at it. <laughs> so, so he says, uh, my dear son, relate not thy vision to thy brothers unless they concoct a plan against you, which is, um, it's, it's uh, about Joseph. So the story of Joseph is about how Joseph gets all these like visions and he gets all these visions about how he's so much better than his brothers. And here it's his father, Jacob, saying, don't tell your vision to your brothers um, because they might plan to kill you, which they do. That's pretty obvious then. Like, obviously, yeah, yeah, the idea that if you have visions and you hear voices and you tell people about it, because Mm -hmm. the reason that you're hearing and seeing things is because you're the chosen one, people are not going to be that nice about it. Exactly. Pipe down, keep it to yourself. Bless him. I don't don't really know what Matt's trying to do at this point. (laughs) He's just trying yeah I don't know he this is what he resorts to as a as a way of communication and Kevin is just not having it I what, think the fact what, that he's hidden the fact that he's been giving a place for Kevin Sr. to come to and having this relationship with Kevin Sr. has equally like pissed off Kevin Jr. and that probably adds to the response that he has to Matt yeah no for sure and yeah, and, and really the way that Kevin wants to deal with this is by going to Nora's house and having sex with her. So let's talk about this sex scene. Like, <laughs> I just thought it was quite interesting. I thought it was quite good in certain ways, but it was just quite strange. Like, <laughs> one of the strange things is that the, the main leftover scene is playing over it. Which, which doesn't a... appear elsewhere in the episode. With because I odd choice. Is this Kevin's first moment where he has sex since the departure? 
we've seen the flashes of him having sex with someone who disappeared during the departure and we know that that was not his wife so yeah we know that he was having yeah. sex at that point so I suppose yeah it kind of maybe it's reminding us a bit that Kevin was having sex when the departure happened do you think that maybe him asking Nora because obviously Nora wrote off that question earlier when he was like oh are you sure was he saying are you sure or was he really asking himself are you sure was it yeah. him that was feeling anxious about it yeah because the last time he had sex with someone they disappeared that's dick (laughs) i think that's reasonable yeah that's reasonable to say in general though i did think that this scene was quite good in terms of kind of setting up their connection like they're clearly they're not talking and they you know they just the last thing we've seen is them saying I don't know how to talk to you. Yeah. And here they are not talking, but they are definitely communicating and connecting in a certain way. There's a lot of staring into each other's eyes in a way that is not cheesy or romantic in any way, thank God, because I hate when they do that. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, it's it's a passionate scene. Yeah, they are connecting. And I just thought it was very well acted. So so we jumped to the guilty remnant at this point. And Meg has a little folder with Nora's pictures in it, takes it to Laurie, throws it in front of her and writes down, your ex is fucking her. Uh, And she writes down as a response, uh, she looks at the pictures and then she pulls out a paper and she writes down, so what? (laughs) Again, what you said earlier, like here Laurie is being the ideal guilty remnant member, but also Meg is just not being a guilty remnant member here at all. Meg, you should not care about these things. Yeah, like it's not even anything related to you. It's it's almost like her only intention is just to hurt people. She just wanted to get out of her old life. So we then move to the uh, post-coital moment with uh, Kevin and Nora. Uh, and Nora is asking him if he's okay and what's wrong and uh, he very honestly says I think I might be going crazy and she very openly says well you've come to the right place so there is a nice moment of connection here where they're being open with each other and, and admitting that they're both maybe flawed and both have things going on but they're there for each other yeah and then he arrives home <laughs> And Jill is like, so where, you know, where were you? Just spilling the beans like I was with a friend. Actually, I think it might be fun to meet soon. So as he's saying, oh, I think you'd like my new friend. We should uh, find some time to get together sometime. He uh, pulls up in the bin and sees the National Geographic issue that his father has uh, previously just pushed on him and saying that it's an invitation for him to uh, so he immediately uh, goes, what the fuck is this? He gets very aggressive. He goes, why Why do you have this? And she said, oh, like, I got it for grandpa. Uh, and he goes, he's just being honest. She's just explaining yeah. the situation. And he's just very, very angry. I think as much as Kevin likes to think that he's nothing like his father, maybe he's more like his father than he realises. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think this episode, like, reveals that quite a lot. As they're having this little argument, this is when the the, the dog jumps up at the window. And this was the moment that I thought, 
kind of replicated like the front cover of, of the National Geographic. Is yeah, the bear yeah, supposed yeah. to be a similar image of the dog um, on both back legs? Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. And then Kevin is going towards the bin, and I think he's about to take the the issue, but then we don't see what happens. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, it's 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 unclear what happens with the issue itself, whether he picked it up or yeah, or there's just it is. like a bit of suspense around: is he gonna accept this invitation or not? Kind mm-hmm. of thing. So uh, next up, so we see Tom. Back to Tom, and Tom gets a a call from Wayne. Uh, so essentially, uh, one of the things that he's been keeping an eye out for all these months, uh, he answers the phone. We hear Wayne say Tom, and Tom just throws the phone across the street, smashes mm-hmm. it, just like Kevin smashed the phone earlier. And Tom gets home. He goes home back to where Christine and him are living. He sees the mattress on the floor and there's just blood everywhere. It doesn't look good. He follows the blood uh, across the room into the bathroom. And we see Christine sat in a bathtub holding a baby uh, with the umbilical cord still attached. And she looks at Tom and says, it's a girl. So it's, God, it's pretty brutal. The thought of of being on your own at home. You've not had a single doctor checkup. You have no idea if your baby's oh, healthy, if you're was, healthy. She like ill as well. And with a yeah, baby. right. She she's not been feeling good anyway. And then suddenly you start going through labor, and the one guy who has been promising to look after you and follow you has just fucked off and is not. He's fu- he's fucked off to go get some paracetamol or whatever for you, and then just has not come back for hours and hours. So you're potentially also thinking that maybe he's in trouble, and so you just start bleeding everywhere. So there's also here the uh, revelation that despite the uh, assumption that it's going to be this boy bridge mm-hmm. uh it's actually a girl so i suppose yeah. the final nail in the coffin here uh for for tom that wayne doesn't really know what he's talking about because mm-hmm. he's been saying it's going to be a boy all this time and it's, it's a yeah, girl. yeah and also i think this is interesting in in terms of what we've been talking about the father-son genetic connection of Mm -hmm. the parallels between Tom and Kevin and the parallels between Kevin and Kevin Sr. And it's like, in a sense, the potentially the girl is is breaking that cycle. That's interesting. Rather than a bridge, she's a barrier? I don't know. Hmm. So we have our motifs. So we have the crossing and the dogs, again, quite broad, potentially season-long, if not show-long motifs. And then we, I mean, I think I'm going to go for Jill for my MVP. I think she's done yeah. well. I'm still going to go for Dennis. Yeah, fair. I think Dennis deserves it. <laughs> Both, we've picked characters that have just showed up and done their job and not been dicks this week you know Indeed. yeah that gets you an mvp in the world of the leftovers <laughs> <laughs> clearly it's not the hard to get mvp when most people are um very awful people yeah <laughs> it's it's easy enough and then in terms of rating let me see so the lowest that we've given is 
for episode two, we've given a seven. Okay, and then I think it's higher than two, but I think it's given a seven and a half to the Gladys episode. We've given an eight and a half to the uh, Baby Jesus. Maybe an eight. I was gonna. I was gonna say like it was between episode two and um, Baby Jesus, but I thought that we'd given Gladys higher. Oh, you think this is lower than Gladys? I do. I don't know. I think it's. Oh no, maybe not. No, maybe not. I'm just looking at what happened in the Gladys episode. No, I think yeah, I think not much happened in the Gladys episode. No, I think this is more eventful than the Gladys episode. I would give this an eight. Okay, let's give this an eight. I think that's fair. We're definitely going to end up going above the ten. Um, yeah, no, I've always known that. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah, actually, we're only given two tens. We hover in between a seven and ten, which I think is very fair. Fair, definitely. So yeah, I think this is it for the non-spoiler section, and uh, we do have an email address: the leftover thinkers at gmail.com. Please send yeah. us your thoughts, uh, agreements, disagreements. Tell us more about the spider that lives underwater. Bible okay. experts always welcome. <laughs> again, like we need to have a long chat. Um, okay, so we're now moving into the spoiler zone. I think one of the things is, do we want to just talk about Christine's baby for a bit? I think we talked about this during the baby Jesus episode. What is the actual significance of the baby? And probably there isn't one. She's just she's just a baby. Yeah, but then and I suppose this is a, a recurring theme, things that are being set up to be something important and then they're kind of undermined to being unimportant yeah and she gets invested with meaning time and time again and she just she's just a baby yeah she doesn't have any intrinsic meaning she's just yeah carried around and being essentially used by other characters um in whatever way uh works for them another thing that i mentioned down here is the the paul galski thing Mm. Uh, so the the fridge boy so I suppose I just wanted to mention the fact that if uh, the departure was this sense of everyone who departed is in exactly the same place in the exact same world but just inverted then this notion of someone disappearing in a fridge um, or departing in a fridge it opens up some really dark uh, insinuations about what happened on the other side, right? So we've already seen some quite dark things happen on this side. So uh, planes crashing, uh, cars crashing and causing irreparable damage. But then it just opens it up again. If we're seeing people depart from this side. So Paul actually did depart and arrive in this alternate world in the fridge and in a fridge yeah right like in the exact same position he would not have known that anything had changed from paul's perspective he was locked in a fridge and stayed in there until he suffocated and died Mm. like it it gets pretty grisly when you start like reading that interpretation on the things that we're seeing from the um non-departed yeah you know so many more planes would have crashed on the other side yeah (laughs) absolutely 
God, absolutely. And I also think that the crossing makes sense in light of that interpretation, right? Because they are yeah. literally going into another dimension. They're going somewhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that was the next thing I had to say. In is that this phrasing of the crossing? I'll see you on the other side, which is what that dickhead little teenager said. Um, this idea of, of a, a movement from one space to another is. Uh, solidified through this idea of an alternate world in which the um is it the 98 percent the two percent that disappeared one percent two percent should know this <laughs> we should know this we're doing a podcast about this show yeah um, this is like a pretty key thing <laughs> <laughs> uh where the um larger percent the sorry the smaller percentage of people disappeared and reappeared anyway they clearly had in mind something like this from the start as one of the possibilities of what had happened i think this phrasing in the in the ritual of the teens is not is not random agreed it's almost like they're they're intuiting something more than you know something that is more accurate than other hypotheses that have been made one final thing that I had to say for the spoiler zone was in relation to Kevin's um, hand injury um, okay. and and also uh, Tom's hand injury, which together kind of could make the um, injuries of Jesus on the cross. Interpreting oh, uh, Kevin as obviously in the future we see that he is seen as this Jesus figure. Maybe we can read those as a little insinuation of this future the, the future imagining of, of Kevin as being like a Jesus figure didn't you say there was a part of that dream that they cut out the original yeah 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 yeah. They, there. yeah exactly so um I I wonder to what extent the location of these injuries was thought about in terms of that 